Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise be to God. It's such a pleasure for me to be here in front of you guys all in my home, McKinney, Texas. I want to welcome you all for coming into my home and welcome everybody coming from SoundCloud. God bless you and welcome. I want to welcome you to our beautiful Sunday morning service here. It starts at about 1015 at Gospel Saving Church. If you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, and let's ask God to bless the service, and then I'll get teaching. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21, but if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, and uh, then we'll get going. So, Lord, King of heaven and earth, thank you so much, Lord God, for all your grace and all your mercy and all your goodness. Thank you so much, Lord God, for this message, and thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Thank you so much for the word or the message of your word, Lord God. Wow. What an amazing thing it is, Lord God, that you gave us the messages that you gave us in your word of power and love and and grace and truth and holiness, Lord. And on the flip side, Lord, of of warning, Lord. Lord, I thank you for all the different messages, messages that you give us in your word, your holy word, your inspired word, your perfect word. Thank you so much, dear God, for all that you do for us. Thank you so much for all your leading and your Holy Spirit and all your good things that you give us from above. We ask you to bless this service today, Lord God. We ask you to bless our minds, Lord. Help us to focus and understand clearly today what you have to tell us. Lord, you said there is no one that we should call teacher because you, Jesus Christ, are our teacher. And we know that the Holy Spirit teaches us your word. So we ask today, Lord God, that you would be our guest of honor and teach us, Lord, what you want to teach us by your Holy Spirit, Lord. And use me, Lord, as a vessel to bring truth from your word to the people, Lord God, that you'll draw to listen to this message. We love you and we praise you and we thank you. And we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. We're not going to read them just yet. I'm going to get my thoughts from last week. But Matthew 21, 23 through 27. But first, my thoughts from last week's message, God is not a genie. In our sermon last week, I covered the very, the very terrible false belief called name it, claim it if you remember correctly. This is a, a, something that people have come up with from Matthew chapter 21, 21 and 22, and Mark 11, 23 and 24. And they claim that whatever you want, all you have to do is pray about it and just believe and have faith and God will give it to you. No matter what it is you want. The sky's the limit. Whether well, It doesn't matter whether it's good for you or bad for you. It doesn't matter... You know, the, you know, the Bible speaks against, you know, everybody always just lusting after wealth and so on and so forth. You can name it. You can have it just because you pray for it. That's what they say. Well, remember, that's false because the Bible says that only God, God does say we can have things guaranteed in prayer if we believe on, believe on them and have faith. But those things have to be those things that glorify God. Those things have to be those things that are God's will. Not just whatever we want God to give us, like he's our genie, hence that title, God is not a genie. That's our message from last week. Well, along with, and I didn't cover this last week, because mainly, 
you know what what you know what 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 was thrust upon me last week to speak about was the 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 wealth aspect of it the prosperity aspect of it but unfortunately along with this name it claim it the, uh, theology or doctrine people have also claimed they've clumped in together with it this health or healing by faith as a guarantee they claim that if long as you have enough faith God has to heal you because it's not his desire that you're sick or ill. So there, if you pray and you have faith in God, by your faith has to, again, I will say, be your genie and heal you. Because just because you want it or because you believe it or because you have faith in it, strong enough. But you know, sadly, God nor Christ ever said once in his whole word, that health or wealth or anything like that were ever a guarantee 100% to those that had faith and believed. It's just not in the Word. We don't read any verse that says, God says, as long as you have faith and believe, I'll heal you and you'll never be sick. We don't have any verses that say, if you just believe and have faith that this finances are going to come, that, that money will be, then you can be a millionaire. There are no such verses like that in God's Word, not one. So Christians out there, be warned of this false teaching that's very popular in our day and age today. It is poison, absolute poison, and it makes God out to be a genie. But you know, mainly in my overview, mainly in my thoughts from last week, one of the things that I felt God wanted me to speak about was Forget about what's not right to pray for. Okay, We already know those things that are not right to pray for. Anybody can use their common sense brain and realize God's not a genie and he's not going to do those things for us and nowhere in God's word does it ever say that. So let's use our common sense brain and we know that those aren't right. But enough of what's not right to pray for. What kind of things does God say in his word that we can pray for and that we can have a guarantee that we can have in faith and we can expect to receive things. Well, of course we know right away that they have to be God's will and they have to glorify Him in Christ. Okay, of course, that's a given. Well, the Bible's very clear on what kind of things are God's will. The Bible's very clear on what things glorify God in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to talk about a few things. I'm going to keep this Kind of short, because realistically I could make a whole sermon on the things that are God's will and the things that glorify God in Christ and those things that we can you know, pray for and have an assurance, a guarantee that we can have. I'm going to keep this short, but we're just going to cover just a few of them. There's lots more, mind you, than what I brought up here. But just some, so that you'd have an idea, while you're praying, what kind of things can I pray for that I can... I don't want to waste my prayers. You know, I don't want to just... Uh, you know, just be praying for nothing. I mean, nobody wants to do something for nothing. You know, you, know, you want to be productive, right? I want to be productive. What kind of, so what kind of things does God's word say that we can pray for and have an assurance of that we can pray for and have and, and we can receive? And remember now, a lot of people will tell you, well, I prayed that already, whatever, I'm going to bring up these things here. Well, you can't just pray once, okay? Nowhere in God's word does it say you just Pray the prayer of faith one time, and then that's it, okay? There is such a thing as continuing to come to God in perseverance, you know, being persistent. We see that throughout the New Testament. We see people being persistent 
unto Christ and then getting something that they are hoping for, getting something that they want to receive. And then God, you know, finally going, okay, I, yes, you're being persistent. I will, I will grant you, you know, your request of me. So mind you, these are some things that we can pray for and be productive with in prayer. And we can just have an assurance when we pray for them that God will hear our prayers and that he'll grant us our requests. Okay. First Timothy two, one through four. This is God's will or desire for us, the saved, for his children, for those that are lost. Okay, God has a will for that. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So we know that this is something that God wants us to do. God wants his children to pray for other people. It's called intercession. He says, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable, and may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So this is one of the things that God wants us to pray for. And he goes on to say, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God and Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So we know as God's children, that if we have family, or we know our president, or we know our congressman, or we know our, 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 our children, or we know our friends at work, then we know they're not walking with the Lord. And it's good and acceptable inside of the Lord that we pray for them to be saved, to come to the knowledge of Christ, to come to be born again, because that's God's will, because he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Because he says again, 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So when we're praying, one of the things that God wants his children to pray for and have an assurance of in our faith that we will receive it are other people around us and our family members and our government officials and so on and so forth, you name it, to be saved. When we pray this prayer, we can have an assurance that since that's God's will, we can hold on to it and we can, ex we can expect to receive it. Now, why I say only one time doesn't work with prayer, because when you're talking especially about praying for people to get saved, you have man's will in there too. And you see, so then it becomes God's will over man's will. And then we know that God can't force his will upon us because he gives us free will. So I don't know how it all works. I just know that God is the only one that can save and people are lost. Lots of people are lost. And God wants us to have an assurance and pray for people to get saved and to keep praying for those people that we love to get saved. And this is one of the things that God says in his word is his will. Okay, for us, for believers only, or for God saved only, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7, for this is the will of God, Christian, your sanctification. What does that mean, sanctification? Sanctification is becoming more like God with your life. 3 through 7, that was only verse 3, then Paul goes on to write, the list of the meaning of sanctification, which is a holy lifestyle that God wants his child or the saved person to live, abstaining from all kinds of sinfulness. You see, if you are saved, you will your sin in your life will go away. It will go down. It will get less all the time. 
because you cannot be a child of God under his charge, under his parenthood, under his reprimanding, and still continue in the ways of sin as you did before you came to know him. So one of the things that we can pray for for ourselves, one of the things that we can pray for for other Christians, is for God to sanctify them. For God to make them more like Him, more holy in the things that they do, more loving in the ways that He is. That is another thing that we can pray for and be assured, uh, have a guarantee when we pray that God will do that for us if we pray the prayer of faith. To the saved again, this is one of my favorites because this is unfortunately where the devil took his prosperity gospel, and he snuck it in there, but this is a truth, okay? This is one of my favorites, Matthew 6, 25 through 33, God's provision. This is just the highlights, verse, verse 25. Therefore, Jesus says, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So we're not supposed to worry about our provision. Well, why? Go down to verse 31 through 33. Therefore, do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. So we're not supposed to seek after all that stuff. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousnesses. And all these things shall be added unto you. Another thing we can pray for, the prayer of faith that we know that we shall have, something we can be guaranteed to have by God in faith and prayer, is provision. If you belong to God, He will provide for you. Now, it may not be what you think you should be being provided for. Well, Lord, I think I should be provided for, you know, uh, you know $10 million in, in, a, in a castle in England. No, God may choose other things to provide for you, but he knows exactly what to give you. And he does not leave his destitute. He knows how to provide. He knows those that are his, and he knows how to provide. So if we're in need, we can go to God in prayer and with 100% certainty ask God to provide and know that he will. Absolutely 100% know that God will provide for you if you're his child. Anyway, this topic can be taught on for a lot longer than I just did, but we got to move on. But just know this, people of God out there listening to me everywhere, wherever you are, read your Bibles. Seek God's heart as you read. Ask him, Lord, reveal to me the things and the ways that you want me to pray. And he'll reveal these things that we discussed to you, along with lots of other things as well, too. God's word's very clear on all these things. I could make a whole sermon on all this stuff we just talked about, so I'm going to stop right here. So just know that if you want to know more things that God's, you know, that are God's will, more things that are acceptable to pray for in God, just go to the word. Keep seeking God. Trust in him and just ask him, Lord, what other things can I pray for? And he'll give you those things to be assured for. So that way you know you're not in error. You're not you know, praying for something and you're not wasting your prayers. Because if you're seeking after all the goods of the world and that's all you're seeking for, and all you want is just to be healthy and you want to be wealthy, God says, I'm not going to hear your prayers because that's sin. Okay? 
So don't go after that. Let's move forward to next, next week's message. Just focus on his word and what it tells you to pray for. Title of our message today, this week, By what authority are you doing these things? And that comes out of Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. So if you want to go to your Bibles and read with me or just listen along. By what authority are you doing these things? Matthew 21, verse 23. Now when he, Jesus, came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Well, why then don't you believe in him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So, what's been going on with Jesus and his disciples? Well, if you remember, just a short little kind of blip back from a week or two back, Jesus And his disciples go to Bethany after he cleanses the temple in the morning. They come back to where the temple was and the fig tree is withered. Disciples see the fig tree withered. They ask Jesus and he gives them the big talk about faith and so on and so forth. So in today's scripture, that's where we still find Jesus and the disciples. We still find them in Jerusalem because that's where they had just seen the fig tree withered. But now... Where are they in Jerusalem? Well, with all that just happened to Jesus in the temple the last time he was there, remember, he goes into the temple, he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey, goes into the temple, sees all the evils that are going on in there. People are buying and selling, making, you know, they're, they're taking advantage of other people, they're, they're making God's house a house of trade, you know, a house of, a house of business instead of a house of of worship and prayer. So Jesus takes all the tables, he tips them over, he drives everybody out, you know, people run out, he, he you know, he starts healing people, he's doing a bunch of miracles, the, the, you know, the religious Pharisees come to him and they kind of confront him, and then he leaves again, okay, and he leaves and goes to Bethany, okay? The temple would probably be the last place that Jesus would have wanted to go, right? I mean, after all, he just created a whole bunch of ruckus. He just created a whole bunch of problems there, right? I mean, he came in, drove out these people, thrashed them, you know, and and, and then started doing all these miracles. So, you know, where do we find Jesus in Jerusalem at the start of this scripture? Verse 23 tells us that he was right back in the temple and he was teaching the people. Now, He goes boldly back into the temple. He starts teaching the people that were there, even after all the things that he just did. Even after all the problems that he just created for all the religious leaders and all the religious people that were, or the so-called religious people, I should say, all those that were there. You see, Jesus wasn't scared of anybody. He didn't say, well, you know, since I offended these people, well, then I, you know, I don't want to go back to that part because, you know, after all, I just caused them a bunch of problems. They probably don't like me right now. 
No, he goes right back in, verse 23, when, it, when, when he came into the temple, you see, and he started healing the people. Right back in the midst of, you'd say, the lion's den, right? Jesus wasn't scared of anybody. We should all pray to be more like Jesus here and not scared of people and become bolder in our witness of God as Jesus Christ was here, as we see him here. So verse 23 also tells us that while he was there, while he was teaching the people, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching those people, okay? So Jesus goes into the temple and teaches, and of course exactly what you think would happen happens to Jesus. The religious leaders were there again, okay? And of course, they confront him about his actions, both what he's doing now and what he did just the day before. Verse 23 tells us that they confront him with one main question. Although we read two questions here, it's really just one question. In verse 23, they come to him and they confront him and he says, and they say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Okay. Really one question there. Who gave you the authority to do the things that you are doing? Rephrased. Who gave you the authority to wreck the businesses in the temple yesterday and teach the people in the temple today? That's really their main question to him. How, who even gave you the right to do this? Who are you, they're saying. What's your, who, who's your boss? You know, we, we, you know, we report back to so-and-so, and we report back to so-and-so. Who do you report to, Jesus? How dare you come in here and do what you did? Who, who gives you that authority to do that? Now, what a question. From the religious leader's perspective, their business would be about the temple and the things of God, such as the synagogue and etc. Okay? That was their duty. Their duties were involved with the temple and the synagogue and the people of God and so on and so forth. This fellow Jesus and his disciples come in to their jurisdiction, to their temple that they're kind of in charge of, and he starts tearing things up and causing upheaval. So what a question. It actually, to, in their eyes, they think, well, it's a good question. Now, even though they believe they had a good question, how does Jesus see their question? How does Jesus answer them? Look at verse 24 again in the question in 25. But Jesus answered and said to them, or answered them to their question of, by what authority I do these things, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men. You see, Jesus saw their question a bit differently, and he saw it differently for a good reason. He doesn't answer them the exact way and the exact answer that they wanted to hear. He doesn't come right out and tell them, this is by the authority which I do these things, by this. Instead here we see, and I could, you could tell if you know Jesus' tone, instead he gets angry with them a little bit, and he gives them a roundabout answer. He tells them that he, he will only answer them if they can tell him where, the, where John the Baptist's baptism came from. Back when I was growing up, 
we used to have this thing, this little quirk. And if you ask somebody something and they asked you something else, you could say, nope, I asked you first. You have to tell me. Well, I guess Jesus didn't hear about that quirk because he didn't, they, they could have said, Jesus, well, we asked you first because he wasn't going to answer him anyway. Okay? I guess he never, he doesn't care about that old rule that I grew up with. Okay? So Jesus doesn't tell them right out what authority he does these things. Why did Jesus get angry with them and not give them this direct answer? I mean, all he had to do was tell them, I do the things that I do because God gave me the authority to do them. God, my heavenly Father, has made me this Christ, this, this Messiah. He sent me to this world, and that by Him I do all the things that I do. Well, Jesus had a good, a good reason to answer them the way he did. Let's look at why. You see, many times before this and other run-ins with the religious leaders, Jesus had both told them and showed them by the miracles he did that he was God's son, that he was the promised Jewish Messiah, that he was the Christ. Where you say did Jesus show them the, all these things, you may ask. I'm glad you asked. Just a little bit on each one. I'm not going to spend a long time here, but just a little bit on each one. Matthew 9. Jesus tells paralytic that he finds your sins are forgiven. See? Well, he tells them sins are forgiven. The religious leaders that are there, that are Pharisees, say, wait a minute, they're thinking in their minds, that's blasphemy. Nobody but God can forgive sins. So instead of just telling the man that his sins were forgiven, you know, just lip service, Jesus goes ahead and makes the man walk. You see, because only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus said, I forgive you of your sins. But then he backed it up in front of the religious leaders, in, in, in front of the same sect of religion that these guys were here in today's scripture. And he backs it up by making the man walk. So he said it, and then he did it. He said the deed, and then he put his action behind it, proving, hey, I'm from God. Only God can forgive sins. And then look, boom, I'm going to heal the man and make the man walk. Pretty plain there who he said to them there who he was. I'm from God. I'm going to forgive people of their sins. And then I'm going to make the man walk. Pretty clear. Okay, pretty clear. Matthew 9, 32 and 34. Jesus heals a mute and demon-possessed man. Religious leaders come to him and tell him, he casts out, you cast out demons by, the, by, by Satan. And they completely disregard his healing. They completely disregard his supernatural healing that he does. Healing this mute man and this demon-possessed man. And they claim that he did his miracle by Satan. Again, same thing, Pharisees, the same sect of the people that ask him this question in today's scripture. Matthew 12, man with withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Jesus has uh, all these hard-hearted Pharisees around him. Once again, Jesus confronts them with some powerful words, telling them, you know, if you had an animal fall into a ditch and so on and so forth, would you not pull him out on the Sabbath? And so he looks at them and he asks them this question. They stay silent. And he turns to the man and he heals him on the Sabbath. Pharisees leave instead of saying, wow, he's right. Well, look at what he did. Man with a withered hand. Whoa, man had a full withered hand. Wow, wow, this has to be the Christ. Instead, they leave and they plot how to kill him. Matthew 12 again, man brought to Jesus who was deemed possessed, blind and mute. Jesus heals them and the multitudes marvel saying, could this be the Christ? I mean, and they're thinking to themselves, we've never seen anybody do the miracles that this man's doing. Oh my gosh. 
wow, this guy, he's got to be, but, but is he? They're kind of like in, they're kind of in doubt, but they're kind of wrestling with it. He's got to be, oh my gosh, I mean, who's ever done things like this before, right? So the multitudes are believing, but, not, but, but, their, but their physical mind is unbelieving. Well, well, the religious leaders, these Pharisees again, come in and they say, oh, he did it by the devil. I mean, he did it over and over and over and over again. He showed them by his works who he came from. The same religious sect of people that are in our scripture today asking him the same redundant question, by what authority do you do these things? And then he caps it off. There's lots more in between there. But just for time's sake, we just fast forward all the way to Matthew chapter 21. He rides in on a cult. Messiah was supposed to do that. Religious leaders see it. They confront him. He quotes Messianic prophecy of himself, telling them, hey, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. Same Pharisees. This is the day before today, the day that he's in now. These same people, he comes in, they see him riding in. They confront him and say, what are you doing? You're crazy. He says, hey, quotes Messianic prophecy of himself. I'm from God. That I mean, it's pretty plain he tells them who he's from. He's telling them over and over and over and over again who he's from. Okay, There's a whole bunch more, but for time's sake, I think you get the picture. But there was probably, at this time when Jesus did this, not one person in Israel who didn't know about Jesus Christ and all of his miracles. And they, there's probably not one person in Jerusalem or in all of Israel that didn't know that he claimed himself to be the Messiah. Now, whether they believed it or not, that's another story, okay? Whether they believed his claims is another story. But they all knew who he said he was from. They all knew where he said he was from, okay? Jesus told them, religious leaders, in John chapter 10, verse 37 and 38, he kind of caps off exactly what I've been saying. He says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I am in him. Believe the works that I'm doing. Know by them that I am from God. He's my authority that I come from. He is why I do the things that I do. So by all these works that he did, and him proclaiming himself to be Messiah in Matthew chapter 21 with the cult, they would have already known by what authority he just did the things that he did. So you see, when they ask him here, by what authority do you do these things that you do, they really weren't asking with honesty. They really weren't asking with sincerity. They were asking scornfully. They were asking, being, mocking him, okay? They weren't asking him from true hearts. They already knew. They were really wasting his time, and and they were really mocking him, and they were really trying to just, you know, just distract him, okay? So this is why Jesus gets angry with them, And he answered them with some scorn here in a roundabout way. You see, if you are honestly seeking God, and you are honestly, in humility, in truth, want to know about him, anybody, now this goes for anybody in the whole world, he will give you a square and powerful, plain answer 
and help you see the truth and help you understand. But if you're being a jerk and you're being scornful and you're being disrespectful and you're being, you know, just rude toward Jesus, oh, you know, and I've had people tell me this. You know, if Jesus just came down here right now and stood right in front of me, then I'd believe in him. And then in my mind, God spoke to me later and said, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even do that because they wouldn't believe in me even if I came down. Because they refuse to believe. Not that they don't believe. They're refusing to believe. And no matter what I do, they just are going to refuse to believe. So if you're being a jerk and you're being, you know, disrespectful and you're being you know, uh, scornful toward Christ and you want to, and you're going to mock him and you're going to ask him a question and mocking, he's not going to answer you or he's not going to give you a plain answer and he's not going to help you see the truth. This is God. He is a character just like me and just like you. And how would you act towards somebody that came to you asking you and mocking you and trying to make sport of you? You're not going to answer them at all. You're going to tell them, get lost, man. I'm not going to answer you. Well, that's in a sense, in a little bit of what Jesus did here. But we see the love of God, though. We can't negate that we see the love of God and the compassion of God towards these hard-hearted guys, still offering them a chance to repent here in Christ's roundabout answer. He does give them a chance. He does give them an answer, but it's a roundabout answer. Doesn't come right out and say, God's the authority that I come and do these things, but he he pretty much around the side tells them, but they just have to admit it because he wants them to admit it so that they can see that, you know, we're being idiots, we're being wrong. So how do you say, how you say, how did Jesus give them that aroundabout way to still slip in there? How did God still give them a little bit of grace here in his answer? You see, Jesus' answer to their question was not an out-and-out out out get-lost-fellas answer. It might have been from me if I were in his shoes, but it was not a get-lost answer from him. Where did he give them a chance to repent? Where? You see, the fact that he pointed them to John's baptism, that's the key. You see, way back in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist called the Jews to a baptism of repentance to bring them back to God from their sinful behavior, from their sinful ways. And everyone thought of John as a prophet of God because he was a prophet of God. He was a man of God. In fact... Nobody thought twice when John was there and doing his baptism about him being from God. And with him being from God, that meant his baptism was from God. And since he was from God, his baptism was from God. And in his baptisms before all the people, what did John the Baptist say about himself? And what did he say about Jesus? Therein lies the aroundabout answer that Jesus tried to get them to admit, to come out of their mouths and say themselves, this, we know you're, you say your authority's from God, but they just wouldn't 
buckle. You see, we read Matthew chapter 3, verse 19, starting there. And the Bible says, Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not, did not, did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? They asked him. He said, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give answer to those who sent us? Which you'll see in a second, which was the Pharisees, the same sect of the religious group that's questioning Jesus here. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, the way of the master. So I'm coming before the master comes. I'm his forerunner. Okay. As the prophet Isaiah said, so he also quoted of himself that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy which Isaiah spoke, said, I'm going to send, God said, I'm going to send a messenger before my face who will prepare my way. John says that of himself. Now those who were sent from, excuse me, now those who were sent were, were from the Pharisees. Again, same group of the guys today. And they ask him saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Betharba, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. You see, so John claimed, I'm the, I'm the one, the forerunner of the Christ, of the Messiah. And the Messiah or the Christ, is coming after me. And he's already among you, see? I'm here, and he's already there, and I'm kind of calling him out. I'm preparing his way, making his path straight, getting you ready, people, to hear about this Messiah. And who did John say that the one coming after him was? Verse 29 to 31. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. So John claims, excuse me, and this wasn't Matthew 3, this was John, uh, this was the Gospel of John, okay? So I, I have to back up. I, I'm sorry, I got a little bit excited there. Um, but John the Baptist says of himself that he is baptizing, come from God, to foretell he's the forerunner of the Messiah or the Christ. The man that God was going to send to redeem the world. Okay, He says of Jesus, right after, he says, he's the one. He's the one God sent into the world to redeem mankind. So by Jesus pointing these Pharisees again to this baptism, what he's doing is he's showing them, hey, Jesus is the Messiah come from God, and God is his authority. That's what Jesus was telling them again. 
by John pointing to himself as the one to proclaim the Messiah and Jesus as the Messiah or the one sent from God, Jesus was roundaboutly telling the religious leaders that he had his authority from God to do all the things that he was doing. Okay? Did these hard-hearted evil guys pick up on his reference and roundabout answer or, or where his authority came from? Look at verse 25 through 27 to their answer, and let's see if they got Jesus' hint. His, you'd say, elbow to the ribs. Let's see if they got it. Look in verse 25 after Jesus' question. And they reasoned among themselves. Now, this is Jesus. He said, the baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven... He will say to us, why then do you not believe in him? Well, they were thinking in their minds, conferring amongst themselves. Well, if we admit to him that John the Baptist's baptism was from God, well, John said Jesus was the Messiah, which makes God his authority by which he did all these things. So if we say that, Jesus is going to say, well, then why won't you believe in me? Because John spoke about me. John's the one that said, I'm the Messiah. I come from God. Why don't you believe in me? So they were caught. You see? They were like, oh my gosh. Well, if we say that, because we know that's true, then he's going to say, well then, why don't you already know? It's me. Why don't you believe in me? Verse 26. But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. You see, all All the people of Israel counted John the Baptist as a man of God, as a prophet of God. And the Pharisees were going to, you know, I'm sure with their hard hearts, they they were thinking about saying, well, his his baptism was from men. Well, then all the people around would have heard them say that and they would have said, what? John the Baptist, he was a man of God and they could have gotten killed or stoned by the people because all the people reverenced John the Baptist. So these Pharisees were stuck They were caught in their scorn. They were caught in their wicked answer. They already knew the answer to this question, but they didn't want to admit it. And they were stuck here. They were like, oh, wow, what do we say? If we say from heaven, why don't you believe in me? If we say from men, man, the people might kill us. So they answered verse 27, Jesus, and they said, we do not know, which is a lie. They lied, bold-faced lied to Jesus. They said, we do not know. But absolutely, they knew. And they were just being scornful. They were just wasting his time. They were just being jerks to Jesus. And because of their hard-hearted attitude and answer, how does Jesus Christ answer them? Look at Jesus' answer in verse 27. And Jesus, or he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So I'm not going to tell you either, out and out right, right I'm just not going to tell you by what authority I do the things that I do. I gave you a chance. You know that John was from God. You know that John told you about me. I'm just not going to tell you out and out right where I'm from or what or why I'm, or who, by, by who gives me the authority I give, or I do these things that I do. What did I say earlier? I said it earlier in the sermon. 
If you are honestly seeking God and the truth about God and the truth about Christ, and you're honest with a humble heart, God will reveal himself to you plainly. And he'll reveal himself to you powerfully. If you're seeking God on a matter and you're humbly doing it, God will help you through it. He'll give you the answer that that he has to you. Just plainly, you just seek his face, he'll give it to you. But if you don't, and if you're a jerk, and if you're being scornful, or if you're being rude, or if you're being ignorant, and you're, oh, you know, God, if you just, you know, you know, with this nasty attitude, then guess what? God won't. He won't answer you. Or he'll give you an answer that you kind of have to try to figure out where you don't really know the answer, but, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll get confused because you're not coming with a humble, honest heart to God. What I said is exactly what I said here about Christ and how he treats these guys, how these guys come to him, how he handles them, is exactly what God says through David or David or or Solomon in Proverbs 3.34. In Proverbs 3.34 we read, Surely he, God, or he, and I will say God because it's who the writers talk about, so surely he, God, scorns the scornful but gives grace to the humble. And we see that all throughout Jesus' ministry. Those that come and they're earnestly seeking them, he helps them find the way. But those that come in scorn, you know, he gives some grace there, you know, the roundabout answer, but he just doesn't plainly out and outright say, here's your answer. Here, I'm going to give you the answer. I love you. Here I am. I'm the truth. I can think of countless times when Christ had people come to him where they just came in humility and honor and respect and they asked him a question and he answered them, no problem. But yet when they came in pride or humility or scorn, he answered them like he does here. Really, and he says here, I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. I already says I already told you in a roundabout way, but I'm not going to tell you plainly because you're, you're not coming with a right heart. You don't, you wouldn't, and in fact, even if Jesus would have said, I'm the one, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, and I come from God, he's who I get my authority from to do all these things, they would have said, no, stone him, he's claiming he's blasphemy, blasphemy, and they would have tried to get the people to try to stone Jesus. He said they weren't going to believe, they refused to believe, no matter what. They were just refusing to believe. You know, when you are scornful towards God in Christ, he will scorn you. But if you seek him with an open mind, an open heart, and with honor and respect, he will reveal himself to you in truth. God tells unrepentant Israel in Jeremiah 29, 13 and 14, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, says the Lord. Now, although God spoke this to Israel, this now, God's character, is to all men. Okay, God speaks to all men. He says, if you seek me, man, if you seek me, my son or daughter, then I will be found by you if you seek me with all your heart. You see, because God's character is love. And God wants to be found. 
Are you curious about the same thing as the religious leaders were today, what we read about today? By what authority did he do the things that he did? Who was he really? Are you uncertain or unsure about who Jesus Christ really was? Well, today, the Bible just says, and just told you, and I just told you what the Bible says, it's up to you, my friend. Will you seek God and Christ with all your heart, with a humble and not scornful heart? My closing words to any who desire to know the truth about who Jesus Christ really is, is this. Acts 17, 24 through 27, Paul writing here. He says to those of the Areopagus in Athens, he says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope or, or in his hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each and every one of us. So what do we read there? God put you and you and you and me and everybody on the face of the planet in a certain time period on this earth in a certain place, a continent, state, city, house, whatever, so that you would seek him. So there are things around you right now that you can see God's telling you, hey, I'm real. I'm here and I want you to seek me. In fact, I put you right here so that you would seek me. So that you would grope for me. And what did he say there? In the hope that you find me. God longs for you to grope for him the same way you would look if you knew you lost $10 million. If somebody told you, man, you lost $10 million under there, to me, I wouldn't stop until I found that $10 million. Because that's a lot of money, and that could help my family, and that could help my future family, and that could help God's kingdom right now. I wouldn't stop looking for that $10 million until I found it. God says, I'm the greatest treasure of all, I've put you where you are in your life now in your exact time that you live there so that you would seek me in my hope that you'll grow from me so that you'll find me. That's God's heart towards us. Only question is, will we grope? Will we seek so that we can find? Be one thing for sure guaranteed. If you don't seek for something, and if you don't grope for something, you're not going to find it. If something is hidden, that wants to be found, but it's still hidden, you're not going to find it unless you grope. You will not find something you do not seek that's hidden, that wants you to be found. Period. The end. So, will we seek, will we grope for God today? Well, I challenge you, my friend out there, 
Start praying and asking God to reveal himself to you in a powerful way. Now, if you're seeking him with all your heart, being humble, not scornful, really seeking, now, mind you, just what I said about that $10 million, really seeking means that you don't stop asking or seeking until God reveals himself to you. It may take you a day. It may take you 10 years. I don't think it would take that long. But realistically, real seeking doesn't stop until you find what you're seeking. Especially when you know that it's there. You just have to look really hard for it. You will find it. Just depends how hard are you going to seek. And real seeking is not just, oh, I looked once and I couldn't find it. Real seeking is I keep looking, I keep looking, I keep looking, I keep asking, I keep looking until you find it. You see, God says to you today, the ball's in your court. God wants you to seek and grope for him so that he can reveal himself to you. Will you take him at his word and do it? And ironically, and, and, and there is irony to us, but not in God's eyes. I started out my message with this things that we can ask and pray for. And God in his word says that 100% we can be assured that we'll find or that we'll, you know, that we can have. Okay. So if I ask for provision, hundred percent, I know that the God of the Bible is going to provide for me. And those things that are God's will, I can know 100% I can be assured I'm going to receive those things that I'm praying for. If I just believe on them and have faith and trust in God, I can pray and ask and have those things, right? We covered some of those things in the beginning of our message. Well, in, in irony, as I was just finishing my sermon just this morning, God showed me that in his word, this is another thing that we can add to that list. If you seek me, you will find me. If you ask who I am, I will tell you. This is another one of those 100% things that we can pray for, have faith in, and expect to receive from the God of the Bible. He gives lots, but just an irony to me, not to him. He had this whole thing planned. I didn't. I did not intend to say that clip at the end, but it is true. I started out the sermon with that. I'm ending the sermon with that. If you seek him, he will be found by you, by me, by you, by you out there. It's a 100% guarantee. Just believe and have faith that he's a man of his word. And he will allow you to know him if you seek him with all your heart. So if you're out there and you're not sure or you're confused, just start praying and asking God, God, who are you? God, would you please reveal yourself to me? I want to know who you are. Please, God. And I'm not talking about you ask once and you don't get nothing and then that's it. I'm talking about you seek and you ask until the God of the Bible, which is 100% guarantee here, he says, I will reveal myself to you. And you keep doing it. Until God reveals himself to you. So, I challenge you. If you don't know, or you're not sure, or you're confused, start praying. God Almighty, 
in heaven. Who are you? Please, would you please show me and come in humility, not with scorn, not mocking him. And you can be assured that God will answer you and he will reveal himself to you in a powerful, powerful way. So let's pray. Lord, King of heaven and earth, I thank you so much, Lord God, for your word. I thank you so much for how clear you make things in your word. I thank you for the truths of your word. Lord, that if we seek you, you will be found by us if we seek you with all of our heart. Thank you so much, Lord God, that we can know that if we do that, you'll be there for us. You'll answer us. You'll reveal yourself to us. You'll show yourself to us, Lord. That is so powerful, Lord, because you don't have to do anything like that. You could have come... You could have made everything, you could have left, and then you just could have left us all to rot, and then that's it, and then just laughed at us as each one of us plummeted to hell, but you didn't, Lord, For you, because you are a God of love. Thank you so much, Lord, that this love compels you to desire to reveal yourself to us so that we would come to know you so that we would have fellowship with you so that you could share your love with us so that we could share our love with you for God, you so love the world. But Lord, that doesn't mean that everybody loves you back. So I pray, Lord God, please, that anybody listening to this message that's not sure or they're confused or they just really want to know that they would go to you even if it takes... a. 10 years and they would ask you seeking every day and I don't think it's going to take that long but Lord just I'm not going to stop until I want to know who God is Lord and you said in your word 100% I will reveal myself to that person if they seek me with all their heart so Lord I pray for all that are listening including even myself that we would seek you every day with all of our hearts and that those that don't know you would come to know you and that those that know you would come to know you more. Thank you so much. We love you and we praise you. And I ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. Praise God. Everyone, it's Pastor Ed here. and Thank you so much for listening to the message. It's my prayer that you were encouraged and challenged with what you heard today to be a doer of God's word and not a hearer only. Because your life will soon be passed and only what you've done for Jesus Christ will last. If you live in the Dallas, Texas area, we want to invite you to come to our little house church here in McKinney, Texas. Sunday mornings, our service is at 1015 and the directions can be found on our website. Also, if you have any prayer requests or questions or maybe you believe God has called you to support this church financially, please go to gospelsavingchurch.com and click on the appropriate links. I would love to hear from you personally. God loves you very much. Please love him back by the way you live your life. God bless you and have a wonderful day.